Hey, what's up, everybody? Greatest show on dirt coming to you live from the Sweet Bee Studios. I am your host, Quentin. How is everybody doing? This is Monday night. I'm recording this on February 15th. It's been a couple weeks since I've been on. It's been a busy few weeks. You know, my daughter, I think, has already grown a foot since the last time I've recorded. And I mean, oh my gosh, like it's crazy. She's the sweetest kid right now. She's just about to walk, which is really fun. But at the same time, really scary because she's getting into things. So you always have to keep an eye on her because she's deceptively quick. It's like, don't let the fat rolls and the amount of spaghetti that she can eat fool you. Oh my gosh, this kid ate so much spaghetti two nights ago. It was unreal, like a full bowl that I would have ate. And she just shoves it all in her mouth. She'll slurp it up. Her face was completely orange. Do you know how a Tupperware container looks when it's stained with spaghetti? (laughs) That's how my daughter looked after she finished spaghetti night. But what's awesome is she, over the past couple weeks, she was giving us trouble sleeping. You know, she will wake up at like 12 or 1 a.m., just super hyper, right? And how she would wake us up. So we have the baby monitor in her room and she would just sit up, you know, sort of like the undertaker does, right? When you know, you ever watch wrestling when the undertaker just sits up like that's my daughter. And if you ever see it when she's in the crib, it's a little scary because at night her eyes look black. So it's, it's a little scary. You know, kids are scary either way, but When your kid sits up like The Undertaker at 2 a.m. and her eyes look black, you know, stuff's weird at 2 a.m. I've watched a lot of scary movies, and I don't like to be up late at night because every scary movie that I've ever watched is all of a sudden real at 2 a.m. And so she would just wake up just chit-chatting, and it was the sweetest thing ever, right? But after a couple days, I felt like... I guess a meth addict might who didn't have any more meth, (laughs) you know, just really tired, really cranky, just completely out of it. But then on spaghetti night, she slaughters, slaughters the spaghetti. Like she makes Joey Chestnut look like a rookie when it comes to spaghetti and she sleeps all through the night. So the next night, my wife and I give her leftover spaghetti sleeps completely through the night so now we're on like day seven in a row of her having a strong pasta dish before she goes to bed listen I've put on about 10 pounds and never felt better and my daughter's never slept better so it's really really a good time and but we have my daughter and I her name's Emmy I don't know if I've ever said that but her name's Emmy she just turned a year old on January 25th. She, dude, she's changed my life, man. She's really made the podcast for me more fun because, right, the the podcast to me is a lot about baseball, but it's a lot about family, you know, reminiscing on times, you know, with your parents when you were younger, you know, and a lot of times it's your dad, but in my case, it's a lot my dad, but a little bit my mom because she, you know, was always there to throw me batting practice when my dad wasn't home. And so baseball is a lot of family to me as well. And to have my daughter, and to be able to go through this experience and continue to do the podcast is just super sweet because in my spare time, we'll watch, when I can get her away from Elmo because she really loves Elmo, we'll watch some old baseball games and she'll get into it a little bit. You know, I've usually got to give her some snacks so she doesn't, you know, try to put her finger in an outlet or anything like that. But this last week, we watched the 82 ALCS Game 1 Brewers Angels. Phenomenal game. 
Tommy John, pitched a complete game because that's what pitchers did in the 80s. He uh, gave up three earned runs on the complete game. The, the Brewers lost to the Angels 8-3. to It was a stellar, stellar game. Uh, Gorman Thomas hit a two-run homer off of Tommy John, which was phenomenal. It was in, like, the first inning. And in all the old 80s games, they will do, like, a screen within a screen and interview the baseball players. So as Gorman Thomas is coming up to bat, Keith Jackson is playing the interview, and he interviewed him, and Gorman Thomas goes into the pitches that Tommy John throws, and he slyly goes, yeah, and he also throws a spitball too. So he straight up accused Tommy John of throwing the spitter, but like a lot of guys did that. Like even Dennis Martinez would spit about a gallon of red man tobacco juice on the ball when he would pitch, which was great. And what's even better about the 82 ALCS is Earl Weaver and Jim Palmer are calling the game with Keith Jackson. Now, get this, in 82, uh, game 162 of 1982, the Brewers and the Oils played for the AL East division title. It came down to the last game of the year. And what's so wild about that is the game was at Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. And as Milwaukee comes into Baltimore, it's a four-game series, and Milwaukee just has to win one game to clinch the division, and they're going straight to the ALCS because that's how it was, right? And they drop the first three games to the Baltimore Orioles. So then it comes down to 162, and it's Don Sutton versus Jim Palmer. And during this whole game, the Orioles keep asking the ump to look at the ball because they're pretty sure Don Sutton is scuffing the ball. And I think what happened was there must have been, there was like a foul ball hit or something like that. And one of the umpires got the ball and Jim Palmer was in the dugout because Don Sutton was pitching. And Jim Palmer said, let me look at that ball. So the ump gave him the ball and Jim Palmer could see that the ball was scuffed. And then so he brought it up to the umpires and they actually gave Don Sutton a warning. And they said, listen, if we see another scuff ball again, we're, we're going to kick you out of the game, right? And so he was pretty sure he was scuffing the ball. So what was funny about this Gorman Thomas scene where Gorman Thomas in his pregame interview, he accused Tommy John of throwing the spitball, right? Well, during this at bat, Gorman Thomas hits a two-run home run, slaughters it down to left field, and Keith Jackson has a can call a hell of a game and has a phenomenal home run call, and I absolutely loved it. But then after that, Jim Palmer and Earl Weaver are calling, like I said, calling the game with Keith Jackson, and they're in the booth talking about finding the scuffed ball that Don Sutton was throwing that day. And then I just thought it was pretty funny because it's like Don and Earl are or um, Jim Palmer and Earl Weaver are sort of in the booth kind of talking shit about Don Sutton scuffing balls. And I was like, that is freaking awesome. And the game was just so cool having those guys like Major League Baseball players that just finished their season call a game. And so part of what makes that 82, 82 ALCS good is that the guys calling the game are phenomenal. And they did that with Reggie Jackson too a lot of times. When the season would end, he would call a game. 
And so if you get a chance to watch the 82 ALCS, because I never have, so I'm super excited to get into it. And game two, Pete Vukovic is pitching, and he won the Cy Young in 82, and he's stellar Fu Manchu rocking, right? And I, I don't know. I obviously know the Brewers win the series, but I don't know what it's like game by game. I think the Angels maybe win the first two games and then they end up blowing the lead to the Brewers because I know they sort of did that with the Red Sox in 86 where they were really close to winning the World Series. And I think the Angels sort of maybe blow it in 82 as well to the Brewers. But the Brewers were a loaded team in 1982 they have Cecil Cooper <laughs> I love Cecil Cooper plays a hell of a first base and have like 32 home runs that year I love Cecil's batting stance he rocks the high stirrups and he's got a really good crouch stance he bats left-handed he looks like a player on the American dreams on baseball stars for Nintendo I absolutely love it and then Gorman Thomas hit like 39 home runs that year Robin Yount had a phenomenal season at shortstop. Paul Molitor was still playing third. Listen, Gorman Thomas is the original Mike Trout. I love it. He like he listen, Gorman Thomas played a hell of a center field. He could rob guys out in center field. He robbed he robbed somebody in that 82 uh, game 162 where the Brewers played the Orioles. I don't remember who he robbed, but he went over the wall and got that damn ball. And after the game, he probably drank a few Miller High Lifes with some fans out in the parking lot, dude. It's just that 82 Brewers team was so gritty, man. They hit more home runs than anybody in the league. Like, just stacked to the gills, man. And Don Sutton got traded to the Brewers at the trade deadline that year and had a pretty damn good stretch at the end of that season and definitely helped him get to the World Series, no doubt about it. But And then they went on to play the Cardinals in the 82 World Series, who I want to say were like third they had the third from last amount of home runs hit in all of major league baseball because they were playing whitey ball vince coleman willie mcgee wait maybe honey actually i don't think vince coleman was a cardinal in 1982 here let me search that i think vince coleman might have not been till like 86 when he was rookie of the year hold on 86 no vince coleman was rookie of the year in 1985 and he had 110 stolen bases in his rookie season. But he could have never been what Ricky Henderson was because he only carried like a low 300 on-base percentage, right? I mean, it's so crazy what Ricky Henderson did. The ability to steal so many damn bases. In lifetime, I think Ricky had over a 400 on-base percentage. But that 82 World Series, I've I haven't watched all seven games of that either because it went a full seven. And that's one of the best World Series you could watch because the Brewers had more home runs than anybody and the Cardinals had more stolen bases than everybody. So you had the Whitey Ball versus Harvey's Wallbangers. Harvey Keen always carried a big fat wad. That's what I like about watching these old 80s games. It's nothing but mustaches, mullets, and fat wads of red men. It's so damn good, but... I'll tell you this, it's been fun watching these baseball games with my daughter. And, you know, she doesn't know what's going on. She's just about to be 13 months old. But I will, when we're watching the game, I'll give her a few snacks and, like, a few toys. And, she'll, you know, we'll play some toys while we're watching the baseball game. And I'll go, oh, when whoever's up to bat, I'll explain to her what's happening. I think, you know, as a kid develops, it's got to be important to talk to him. Like, I don't really talk a lot of baby talk to my kid. I just sort of, like, have conversations with her. And she can, she'll she say some words. Like, when I walk in the room, if I say, hi, Emmy, she'll say, hi, Dad. And that, dude, she did that. I want to say on Saturday, I woke her up from her nap 
because my wife was out running errands or something. And I walked in a room and I recorded it. And I walk in and she's just waking up and she gives me the biggest, sweetest smile. And I go, hi, Emmy. And she goes, hi, dad. And I just about died. And what was awesome is I walked in there with my phone recording and I got the whole thing on video on my iPhone. And Jesus, man, it's just, it's so fun to have a kid when you know, especially with really getting into the podcast and the Instagram and remembering all these nostalgic times with my family, be able to share these moments with my daughter. And like I said, I'll just, when we're watching the game, I'll just walk her through like the whole narrative. You know, if, if when Gorman's up to bat, I'll tell her Gorman's stats. I'll tell her a few things about Gorman or I'll explain to her stuff about Reggie Jackson and Tommy John. And it's, dude, it's just so, so fun, you know, to go through that whole narrative, you know, tell her about Rod Carew, talk to her about the announcers, tell her what's going on. If someone hits a single or a double, explain to her what a strikeout is and the rules of the game, because those are the things like that my dad did with me growing up. And just to have those moments, you know, because to me, baseball is about so much more than the game. I've said it a bazillion times, but it's really about family and it's about coming together. And that's just one of the wonderful things sports does. But yeah, that I can't do. I can't wait to finish this 82 ALCS. But we also watched. This is another game you've got to check out. If you go to YouTube, search Marlins Reds 1994. And it's a game from. I think it's July 6th, and it's a phenomenal game. Gary Sheffield's with the Marlins. Benito Santiago's catching. Deion Sanders is batting leadoff for the Reds. Reggie Sanders is in the lineup, too, so there's a lot of speed in the mix. Dude, and Benito Santiago guns out Deion Sanders, guns out Reggie Sanders. Dude, uh, so at the beginning, listen to this. At the beginning of this 1994 game, Marlins Reds, Deion Sanders walks. So he gets over to first base, and Deion's speed, neon Deion, right? So he's taking his lead, and Benito, listen, he's on high alert, right? Like, Deion's at first base, and he's the predator. Benito's behind the plate, and he's Dutch, right? He's Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's got the big cigar. He's got the machine gun. If it bleeds, we can kill it, and he... He knows Dion's going to steal. And this scene, dude, this is so much of what I love about some old school baseball, is you got the guy on first, he's stealing. He knows that you know he's stealing, so it's a duel, man. And so as the pitch coming, man, Benito is on high alert. Pitch number one comes, Benito slugs it, launches it down to first base to keep Dion close. He throws over to first a couple times. So it's already acknowledged that I know you're going. You think you're going to beat me, and I think I'm going to beat you, right? Benito's got the teal helmet on because the 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 Marlins this day, they're at home at Joe Robbie. So they got the bright teal helmets. Old school uh, Marlins uniforms. Dude, I love them, love them. I've been collecting, I've been ordering off eBay the uh, the full-size plastic old-school nacho helmets, and I've got a Padres one right here, and I found a teal Marlins one that's still new in the plastic for like 20 bucks, and I'm going to buy it, right? So all of a sudden, so Benito's still throwing down the first. He's keeping him close. So finally, after... A lot of throws over to first. I think Benito throws down to first twice to keep Dion close. Dion runs. But Renee Latchman, he's the manager for the Marlins. Renee calls a pitch out. So when Dion runs, Benito gets the pitch out, 
guns it down to first, gets Dion by a mile. Dion's out, and he was keeping him close the whole time. So it was like, it was a hell of a battle. And I loved it, man. I love that sort of small ball, the the aggressiveness of baseball. Sometimes aggressiveness in baseball gets lost because it's a lot of home runs and strikeouts. And teams, real data has sort of made it where teams don't take as many chances. And even in watching the 82 ALCS, yo, guys would just run. And they wouldn't even have to be fast guys because there was a lot of strategy. But there was also a lot less strikeouts and a lot more contact made, which is why oftentimes a lot of guys could get through to pitch complete games because they might only throw 110 pitches. But you always have like those Jack Morris, Nolan Ryan outliers where they throw like 145 pitches and then come back on three days rest. And you know they're in the clubhouse drinking beer after the game, right? And then also the next inning, he guns Reggie Jack, uh, Reggie Sanders out at second, not on a pitch out though. And this throw, I think it's probably the third inning of this game. The throw that Benito Santiago makes is on the nose exactly where it should be to the point when I don't know if the second baseman or shortstop is covering. And to be honest with you, off the top of my head, I don't think I could name either one of them. I think Dave Magadan was at first. I don't know. Chuck Carr might have been a second baseman, but I feel like he was an outfielder. Chuck Carr is in that game too. Chuck Carr was a damn, damn good Florida Marlin. He gets a, he gets an important base hit, drives in a run, because at the end of this game, there's a big rally, but I don't want to spoil too much of it. But Benito makes a throw to the second baseman. The second baseman doesn't even have to move his glove to tag out Reggie because that's how accurate of an arm Benito had. It wasn't just a strong arm, and he wasn't just a tough, energetic catcher. He threw an accurate, accurate pitch. And then, this is the last of it, I think it was probably like the fourth or fifth, uh, well, shit, it would have had to been the third inning probably still. John Roper was the guy's name pitching for the Cincinnati Reds. And I think it was a younger guy, probably close to a rookie. And he's up there to sacrifice because there's a guy on first. I don't remember who's on first. So John Roper bunts. First pitch he sees, he bunts. But he bunts it foul, and it pops up in the air behind Benito. Benito Santiago leaps up from his crouch so damn quick, throws off his helmet. You can see the dangly cross earring, and it's like very religious and very badass, right? And he spots this ball and goes in a full leap. He flies through the air like that catch that Bo Jackson made, catches this ball and gets up. He When he catches the ball, he's fully on his face because he had to fully outstretch. So it was a through-the-air dive, hit the ground like a wrestler, knocks the wind out of him. He still gets up within a millisecond, and he's on alert, looking to second to make sure his guy wasn't going. And the sense of alertness that Benito had. I mean, it's a quality game to watch because you see a lot of what Benito Santiago did. And within three innings of that game, he throws out two really speedy runners and eliminates a sacrifice bunt. Three plays that most catchers don't make. Because even if you threw a pickoff, if Dion gets a good jump, hell, he could probably still beat you. But, dude, his arm was just a monster. So Benito was an absolute difference maker behind the plate, and that was a fun 
game to watch. So do that. Get into the 82 ALCS and then get into 1994 Marlins Reds. You'll love it. Next on the agenda, listen, this podcast has a sponsor now because somebody's got to pay for the hams and the Miracle Whip sandwiches. So listen, here we go. Hood Hat. Hoodhat.com. Listen, they make these really cool nostalgic style hats. Do you remember those old sports specialties hats that had um, just like normal font and then they had the scripted font underneath it. So it would say like Florida and then it would say Marlins underneath it in scripted fonts. Listen, that's what these hats look like. Like the hat that I have right now, it's a brown hat with orange writing and it says San Diego and it says Jack Murphy in scripted font. It's 100% merino wool. It's one of the best built hats I've ever had. It's so comfortable. It's so soft and I'm afraid to wear it outside because I don't want to mess it up because it looks so damn good and the color absolutely pops and you can get a ton of of rad baseball styles. So like I said, I've got the San Diego Jack Murphy. They've also got one, like if you're a Pirates fan, it says Pittsburgh and Steel City, and it's yellow with a black bill. They've got one with Mets colors that says Queens flushing on it, you know, and they're they're just badass. Oh shit, I got one too that says Cincinnati Riverfront for Riverfront Stadium. Like I love old baseball stadiums. And these hats, they're really representative of like the neighborhood that, you know, maybe your favorite ballpark's in or even a neighborhood that you grew up in because you can also get the hats customized to whatever you want. Like, for example, they don't make a hat that says Three Rivers for where the Pirates played, but you could customize a black and yellow hat that says Pittsburgh Three Rivers on it, which would be totally badass. And just what's so special about the hats is they don't have team logos on them, And like I said, they've got the scripted um, like font on them, like the old sports specialties hats, but they're just named like not based on the teams, but based on the neighborhood that or the stadium that the teams played in. And that's what makes them so special. So check out hoodhat.com for just some really badass, customized, nostalgic neighborhood baseball hats. And Listen, here's the thing. I started this podcast and I never thought I would get a sponsor because I always never thought that anyone outside of my family would listen to this podcast, but they do. And I'm very thankful for it because it's so much fun. I've been getting tons of like comments on Instagram and having conversations with baseball folks. And especially during like all this quarantine stuff, it's it's really hard Because life isn't normal right now. And especially when you get older, like with me, like I'm 37. And I think a lot of people that listen to the podcast are probably around my age. And as us dudes get older, or really men and women get older, you know, being further removed from high school and college, it's hard to keep friends. So I've really enjoyed the community through the podcast and on Instagram to be able to to talk baseball with people from all different kinds of areas, right? Like I've, you know, I've had people tell me stories about going to baseball games at Candlestick and the Vet and all these cool stories to stadiums that I never went to. And so I feel like I'm making good friends from people that I've never met, you know? The internet sometimes is a really 
toxic place because people just want to talk shit to people all the time. But I've been very lucky because I don't get that, you know, on the Instagram, you know, or anything like that because people are just sweet, you know, and I I love to talk nostalgic baseball. I love to talk family when it comes to baseball and it's just been a great place. And so when it came to the hat, Max, the guy that runs Hood Hat, an absolute sweetheart of a guy, right? He, um, you know, just, he, he makes his hats in New York City. So they're all USA made out of high quality material. And he really puts a lot of work into the hats. And the story that he sort of tells with the hat is this nostalgic where you grew up, like sort of a family story. And so that's why, like, I decided to have a sponsor on the podcast, you know, because I need Miracle Whip sandwiches and Ham's beer, but also because to me, a hat is so meaningful. Like, a hat means more than just a sports team or anything like that. Like, one of, like, I would say probably without a doubt, the one of the, the biggest influence in my life has been my dad, his, his work ethic, his selflessness. And it all started with baseball because through baseball and, you know, him working long shifts in construction, you know, leaving the house at 5am, getting home at four and still playing baseball with me and never complaining, never yawning, never even acting tired. That was the first example I saw of somebody just being selfless and doing something for me that they didn't have to do. You know, my parents could have easily put me in little league and just said, fuck it, he's got a coach, like, just take him to Little League, who cares, but my dad coached my Little League team, my dad taught me the game of baseball, he built me a pitcher's mound, and I would throw pitches to him until it got dark, you know, and when I I look now, you know, my wife and I have a daughter, and the example that he set for me is, you know, I want to work hard to do the best that I can, and take everything that he did for me and do the same thing for my daughter because I want her to see, you know, I want her to see strength. I want her to see selflessness. I wanted to see kindness. And I felt like I got that from my dad. And my dad always wore a hat because he always wore construction, you know, just to keep the sun out of his eyes. But he's, he's just an old country boy. You know, it's like when he leaves the house, he always wears a hat unless it's a funeral or a wedding, you know, he's probably wouldn't try to wear the hat still, but he, he's going to put on a hat because that's just what he does. So from a young age, a hat to me represented hard work and he would have just these, you know, these just hats of, you know, any brand, like, like a fucking Makita saw or something hat that just had the mesh in the back because you got to stay cool. And he just always wore like a mesh hat, like whatever it would be. And sometimes it'd have the scrambled eggs on the bill of the hat. Like right now, like I can't name like a particular hat that he wore. Just sometimes a camo hat, sometimes a hat of like a tool brand that he bought, like a skill hat or something like that. And so as a kid, like I always just wanted to wear a hat and the person that I guess that I always saw wear a hat was my dad. So I think one of the reasons why like I wanted this sponsor was because a hat just means so much more to me. It's like a hat is sort of a time machine as well. You know, like these, these nostalgic hats like Jack Murphy stadium, they just tore it down like a month ago, you know, and 
to wear like this San Diego Jack Murphy hat that I have, you know, reminds me of Tony Gwynn, you know, being on the Padres, Fred McGriff, Gary Sheffield when he was on the Padres, Ken Caminiti, right? A phenomenal defensive third baseman. And those are guys that, you know, that I grew up watching. And so when I put on this Jack Murphy hat, like it takes me back to watching SportsCenter, with my dad at 5 a.m. before he went to work. And back then, Sports Center was only 30-minute episodes, so we would just watch it over and over again. So by the time I went to school, I had the Sports Center episode memorized, and I knew everything about baseball, tennis, golf. Like if it was a sport and Sports Center had it, like I was into it, you know? And always from a young age, like it started when I would leave the house, I would wear a hat, you know, I'd get on my GT performer, ride to the butcher shop. But before I left, I had my Atlanta Braves fitted on because that was the first fitted hat I bought with my own paper route money. And damn, man, we would go to the sandlot and hit baseballs. And I swear to God, I felt like Ron Gant, just ready to hit bombs. And it just like, it, like having that hat on, like I felt like a real major league baseball player. But then now what's really funny is, you know, before my daughter was born, I had to build a lot of stuff. Like I built her crib and now these are cribs that were pre-built. I just put them together. So I'm not that handy. So when I say I built, like I didn't build that shit, I put it together. But I found myself going in the garage and putting this stuff together and I would put on a hat and I would light up a Marlboro because it was time to work. And I'm not a smoker, but I keep a pack of smokes in my garage because my dad smoked growing up. And so I just felt good putting on the hat and smoking the cigarette and putting together stuff for my daughter because that's what my dad did. And it's like, I have to have the hat on. I have to have the hat on when I leave the house, you know? Watching the 03 NLCS with my dad when the Cubs lost to the Marlins when they blew the lead like I had a Cubs hat on. And it's like when I put a Cubs hat on now, it reminds me of all of those old times. You know, it's like a baseball card or, you know, any sort of memory you might have. And it's like the hat. It's this wild thing that started to like keep the sun out of people's eyes. And it's now turned into this powerful, like people wear hats for fashion, people wear hats for utility. And there's just so much memory that comes with a hat. It's like this little time machine that can take you back anywhere. So that's why like I took the sponsor was because I just loved the story and I love a hat, you know, like just think about that, you know, think about some of your favorite hats. Like I can't wait to buy my daughter her first hat. And when she gets sick of the hat and gets older and gets cooler than her old man, I'm going to keep that hat forever because just it means something to me. But that's the whole game of baseball to me is it just, you know, I get on this podcast a lot and I try to say funny stuff because like I want, you know, I want it to be fun but, you know, I just, that's just not what it's about to me. You know, it's just about family. And, like, I remember all the hats I had as a kid. My brother and I, we shared a room, and we had a gun rack in our room with all of our BB guns on it. And we would put all of our colognes on it because, like, we would go to the skating rink on Fridays. So I had, like, Michael Jordan cologne and polo sport and cool water. And, like, when I think of hats, I think of that BB rack. 
right, in my room. And I think of the big-ass Space Command console TV I had watching Hawk Harrelson call White Sox games while I throw a bouncy ball against the wall and practice grounders, right? You see what that does. Like, I just, dude, I love a hat, man. I love a mesh hat. Like, do you remember the Little League hats that you had? Like, listen, I'm going to ask you this, listener, you're listening to me right now. Did your Little League have the wildest, hugest hats in the world? I remember playing Bronco League ball, and one year I was on the Elks, the Elks Lodge. They were our sponsors, right, which is the best sponsor ever, drinking beer. Like, we're good. And the hats they gave us, it's like they were so tall, and but they were so badass because they had the rope around the front above the bill and then a soft bill with the mesh back like I don't have any of those hats but I wish to god I still kept those hats and it's like I'll just think on those hats and think of those little league days like Saturday morning practices and I'm ranting at this point I should probably stop talking about hats but damn it man I love I really love a good hat all right, listen, next, I'll stop. I'll finally stop talking about hats. Let's get to the mullets. Listen, I want to talk about John Cruck, one of my favorite ball players ever. Now, I, I John Cruck is, when you think of John Cruck, you think of the mullet because he probably had the greatest mullet of all time. He's like, has the Fabio of mullets. And he's always a pretty husky guy and just, it's so weird. Like, John Cruck was just this nonchalant dude. Like the time he was out at a restaurant smoking a cigarette, it was he was like at some benefit or something like that, smoking a cig. And this lady rudely was like, you're an athlete and you're smoking a cigarette? And his answer was, lady, I ain't no athlete. I'm a ball player, <laughs> you know? And that was Crucky, right? But the thing about John Cruck is he was a phenomenal, phenomenal hitter. Career OPS plus of 134. That's great. Listen, John Cruck's not a Hall of Famer because he only played 10 years, but John Cruck performed like a Hall of Fame hitter, a 134 OPS plus lifetime 300 batting average, hit exactly 100 home runs in his career. Now you think John Cruck, big guy, right? But listen, John Cruck, John Cruck was a line drive hitter, right? He was not the you know, he was not a home run hitter. He hit over, he hit 20 or more home runs, I think, twice in his career. He hit 21 one season and 20 the next. But listen to this. Keith Hernandez, probably the best defensive third baseman ever and probably a really good comparison offensively to John Cruck. Now, I'll tell you this. John Cruck was not a bad defender. John Cruck could defend a baseball. He, he was a good defender. He obviously wasn't as good as Keith Hernandez. I think we can all agree that Keith Henderson, Keith Henderson, Keith Hernandez, Jesus Christ, I talk so fast on this podcast. I get nervous every time I record a podcast. It hasn't went away. But Keith Hernandez is up there, you know, with the best defensive first baseman of all time. So John Crook's not that, but John Crook was a good defender. Now, there's an argument for Keith Hernandez to be in the Hall of Fame. I think he should be. A lot of people don't think Keith is a Hall of Famer because he didn't have the power numbers associated with the first baseman. Well, Keith was sort of like John Crook. He didn't try to hit home runs. His thing was to get a base hit and, you know, hit the ball and get on base and put it in play because the goal of the game is to score runs. But the era that Keith and John played in, right, 
it wasn't like a home run slugging error. Like John Cruck was out of the league by 94. Keith Hernandez was out of the league by 1990. So these weren't home run errors, right? They were get on base errors because you had guys that could steal bags, you know? And so if Lenny, Dry if Lenny Dykstra is at the top of the lineup, which he was at one point for John Cruck and Keith Hernandez, those guys come in. And, you know, what if Lenny steals second? They need to drive him in. And that doesn't mean they have to hit a home run. They just have to hit the ball. And Keith Hernandez was a damn good hitter. Now, listen to this. Keith Hernandez's lifetime batting average, 296. Crucky's 300. Lifetime OPS plus for Keith, 128. For Crucky, 134. On base percentage, 384 lifetime for Keith, 397 lifetime for John Crook. Do you realize he almost ended his career with a 400 on base percentage? Had an 842 OPS. Listen, John Crook could hit. Now, listen to this John Crook has so many phenomenal stories throughout his career, right? When he retired with the White Sox, when he was only 34 years old, he got a base hit. And when the inning was over, he retired. He left. He was gone, right? And that's just how he wanted to leave the game. And it and that I, I need to go, I need to go back and watch that game because I've never watched the game where he walked off the field. But he did it, you know, in his own way. He was just like, well, I think I'm done playing baseball now. I just, I'm not healthy enough to keep going. And some people would point to John Cruck not being healthy enough to keep going on his weight. He didn't exercise. And some people would say, well, maybe Cruck didn't take care of himself. But here's the thing. Cruck was a wild dude. He was, he was a bigger guy. He'd smoke cigs and he'd drink a beer, right? But I think that that's just who John Cruck was. And if John Cruck wasn't those things, if John Cruck wasn't this nonchalant hitter who seemingly didn't think about hitting well, well, maybe he just doesn't hit that well then, you know? So one could say, well, if John Cruck took better care of himself, maybe he would be a Hall of Famer. But who's to say that the way John Cruck played wasn't the best way to play? Because that's what made him a great hitter was his psyche. Because so much of hitting isn't physical, it's mental, right? Because how you know how else would great athletes be able to hit a ball well and then all of a sudden not, right? Because it's such a mental thing. Hell, when I record this podcast, this episode right here, I started and stopped it like 15 times. Because all of it's just so mental. That's where everything starts. And But other stories about John Cruck, listen to this. John Cruck comes up from the Padres. Now, he gets out of high school and he's undrafted, right? So he plays, oh, I don't know if I remember. I think he was playing, I think he went to college. Uh, I think he was playing maybe like a community college. I don't remember, but someone discovered him from the Padres, right? So he ends up getting drafted in the third round by the Padres. Now, he initially got drafted in the third round by the Pirates, but the Pirates weren't willing to pay him really any money at all. So he just didn't go and then went back in the secondary draft in June and got drafted by the Pirates. So he goes out west to play ball, right? And immediately he gets called up to the bigs. He didn't start playing pro ball until he was 25. So he stayed in the minor leagues for a little while, probably longer than he should. I, I don't really know. But his first season with San Diego was a damn good season. And he was 
playing for the Padres with Tony Gwynn, and him and Tony Gwynn were pretty good buddies. They said that they were fast food buddies because they were big eaters, right? And listen to this one time, I think Tony uh, Crucky asked Tony Gwynn to go out to lunch one day, and Tony's like, nah, I'm busy, I got Aaron. So Cruck's like, okay, whatever. So Cruck goes out to eat, right? And I guess he gets a call at the restaurant that he's in because there are no cellular telephones. And the call is from a police officer. And the police officer says, do you know Tony Gwynn? And Cruck's like, yeah, I play baseball with him. And he goes, well, Tony's been arrested for um, something, for like some sort of misconduct. And we need you to come get him. He's really fighting. And Cruck's like, well, this has to be a mistake. Like, I don't get it. And... So apparently when Cruck walks out of the restaurant, he sees Tony Gwynn in the back of a cop car laughing at him because they just pranked Cruck because he said he was arrested. And that's the type of relationship they had. So apparently the rest of the day, Cruck and Tony Gwynn rode around with this cop that Tony knew and they were looking for some guy that just had an armed robbery on him. I'm like, dude, that is so badass, man. I could just imagine Tony Gwynn and John Cruck in a cop car looking for bad guys with some San Diego police officer. How cool. How cool is that, man? But listen, Cruck's first season in 86 with the Padres, he bats 309 with a 403 on-base percentage. Phenomenal season. 131 OPS plus an 87. Dude, even better. 313 with a 406 on-base and a 140 OPS. And he batted... He had 20 home runs and 91 ribbies, which led the San Diego Padres, led the whole damn team, right? And then 1988 happens. His batting average drops like 60 points. His on-base percentage drops like 40 points, and he only hits nine home runs. He's off the whole entire season. Well, apparently what happened in spring training of 1988... Well, hold on. Let me rewind. At the end of 1987... A couple buddies from where John Cruck was from in West Virginia, they came out to San Diego and they wanted to stay with John for a little bit. And John's like, hell yeah. He goes, because I'm going to uh, Mexico to play in the Mexican League. John Cruck played in the Mexican League for five years, which ended with him being permanently banned from the league because he threw his batting helmet and it hit an umpire. (laughs) So yeah, that happened. And so he goes in the Mexican League. Now he gets back from the Mexican league and Crux neighbors are telling him that his buddies that are living at this house, they're just, they're fucking nuts. They're having parties, they're doing drugs. And so Crux tells him, he's like, listen, like I got to move out of here. I have to find a new place to live. And his buddies are basically like, okay, whatever, we'll move out. So his buddies move out. Well, needless to say, his buddies were on the run. So in spring training of 88, John Crux gets approached by the FBI And they tell him, they said, listen, your two roommates have been robbing banks all over San Diego, and they think that you turned them into us, and now they're running from us. So be careful, because they might kill you, and we got to go try to find them. And Crux's losing his mind. He's like, wait, you mean like these guys have been robbing banks, and they're cold-blooded, and they have guns and drugs, and they're going to kill me? So John Cruck had like the worst 88 season because he said that he thought he was going to get murdered. He thought that they were going to kill him because they thought that he narked them out, right? 
And what's funny about it is one of Crux's roommates who was robbing banks, his name was Roy Lee. That was his first name, Roy Lee Plummer. That was his whole name. Now, if you know somebody, if you got a buddy named Roy Lee, listen, that's all that guy can do is rob banks. Like Roy Lee, everybody in the world named Roy Lee has a police record for something. At one point or another has worn an ankle bracelet, had a mugshot, and has thought about what their last meal would be before they get the electric chair. You just can't trust a guy named Roy Lee. So that's sort of Krug's fault for doing that. But that's what happened in 88. He he was worried that he was going to die, right? And dude, also, he would always have like friends fly from West Virginia to San Diego to come to his games. And apparently they were the biggest hillbillies in the whole entire world. And that's just that's just crook, though, man. Like that's where he was from, right? Wild stuff. So 89 comes around. And he plays like 30 games for the Padres. That's like a buck 80, dude. So the Padres trade him, right? I'm wanting to say... It's like Jack McKeon was super hard on Kruk. And I think that might have been part of the reason why he was in the minors for so long because people thought he was just too fat. They were like, you got to come into camp and lose 15 pounds. But that didn't have anything to do with his hitting ability, right? That's just who he was. Sort of like Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn wore husky jeans, you know what I mean? And But he was a damn good hitter, you know? But I guess this is around the time when I mean, you're talking 87, 88, you know, Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire are already juicing. Brian Downing had put on a bunch of weight. Like, it, fitness was starting to get into the game. So they were like, listen, you're not Babe Ruth, pal. Lose some weight. But so the Padres traded him. Jack McKeon didn't want to deal with that shit. So they traded him and Randy Reddy to Philly, right? And him and Randy were best friends. They played in an adult softball league in the summers or no, I guess in the falls, in the spring, or whenever, they had an adult softball league that Kevin Mitchell would play in, too. And those guys would just go and drink beer, eat pizza, and hit bombs. It was awesome. It was like Randy Reddy, John Crook, Kevin Mitchell, then a bunch of, like, San Diego Padres employees. Dude, it was badass, man. And so he goes to Philly in 89. Dude, and goes right back to normal. 331, 386 on base percentage. Dude, and then from then on, he just became this Philadelphia Phillies legend, right? Of just high batting averages, high on-base percentages. Just just a line-drive hitter, man. Now, here's one thing. I got another story about John Cruck, and I, I did not hear about this story. I never knew it. John Cruck found out in spring training of 1994 that he had testicular cancer. This was the year... After they won the NL pennant and went to the World Series and lost to the Blue Jays, which I think was in six games, right? So, and how it sort of got discovered was at the end of the 1993 season, Mitch Williams was pitching and Kruk was playing first. Mitch throws a pickoff throw to Kruk and it ties him up because it's a shitty throw and it hits Kruk right in the nuts and it cracks his cup. <laughs> So Mitch throws his ball so hard it cracks John Crook's cup, right? And so when spring training comes around, he's getting his physical, and they they inspect it because Crook's like this happened last year, and so they find out that John Crook has testicular cancer in 1994 spring training. So they send Crook back to Philly in February, and he's got to start radiation treatment. Now he doesn't know if he's ever gonna play baseball again. So basically, 
what his days are because he doesn't live in Philly. Cruck doesn't. So the team books him a hotel room right by the hospital that he goes to, which is pretty close to the vet. So he would get radiation treatment every day, leave radiation, go back to the hotel, barf his guts up, and then he would go to the vet. And on the way to the vet, there was a guy that sold soft pretzels, and he would give John a soft pretzel every day. John said he tried to give him money, and the guy that ran the soft pretzel stand was like, no, I don't need any money, man. Just get better. You know, that's sort of what Philly was like. You know, you get into places like Philly, and the fans are wild, but the fans are passionate, and they care about their players. So after John Crook would go get radiation, he'd barf his guts up, eat a soft pretzel, and then go to the vet, and Dickie Knowles would throw him batting practice in the ice because it's February. It's fucking winter and spring. Spring in Philly is basically winter. And so Crook's like, yeah, Dickie would throw me BP on the ice because I ha- I, I didn't know if I would ever play baseball again. That's what Crook said. But he was going to try to play baseball. So, you know, when people look at John Cruck as just like this overweight ball player who smokes and drinks, like, yo, he worked hard. And this was a guy that was going through radiation treatment, barfing his guts up, and was having Dickie throwing BP in the fucking snow, right? This is big stuff. And so how it went was John Cruck got his last radiation treatment on a Monday morning. And it was the Monday morning of the Phillies home opener. And it was obviously going to be the game where they received their rings for the winning the National League pennant, right? So John Crook finishes his radiation treatment, goes straight to the vet. And he talks to the GM, talks to the coach. who's like, Jim Fergosi's the coach. I don't remember who the GM was. He talks to the trainers because his cancer doctor was like, listen, you can play ball. If you have the energy to play ball, he goes, you've been having radiation treatment for whatever the past few months. I mean, if you want to do it, do it. But if you if you feel like you've got the energy, just go ahead and do it. So Kruk was like, I want to play. And Kruk didn't go through spring training. He basically just had a handful of bats in the ice. So the Phillies end up sending somebody down. They put John Kruk on the roster, right? So John Kruk's going to play this game. John Kruk gets out of radiation and he goes to play a damn baseball game at the home opener. The ring ceremony, the fans know what he's been through. Huge round of applause. So first inning comes up. Now, let me remember this. Lenny Dykstra bats leadoff, and he gets out. Mariano Duncan, he's the shortstop. He hits a single, all right? So Mariano's on first, or he may hit a double, and he's on second. One of those two. And then Kruk comes up to bat. He's batting third on the day. Um, I don't remember who was pitching that day. I don't know. Oh, I, I do remember who was pitching. It was Mike Harkey because they were playing the Colorado Rockies, right? So Kruk comes up first pitch, fastball. It's pretty high up. You know, it might be a little above the letters. Fouls it straight back. Okay, strike one. From there, he works a 3-1 count. And... John Crook said after the game, he goes, listen, I know Michael pitched a fastball a little high, and that's what I was hoping for, because if he threw me anything else, he goes, I wasn't going to hit it. John Crook was so nonchalant about this. After the game, he said it was luck. 3-1 pitch comes in. Mike throws him a fastball. Crook turns on that pitch, hits it to the right center gap for a double, drives in Mariano Duncan, one nothing Phillies, his very first at bat. After cancer treatment, he gets he slugs an hard RBI double to the gap. 
the vet crowd goes nuts. They said it was louder than during the whole time when they clinched the pennant, got to the World Series. They thought the place was going to fall apart. It was so damn loud. Crut gets the second. He's in complete shock. Walt Weiss walks by him and goes, tip your cat, tip your cap, dummy, because he just doesn't know what to do because Kruk isn't the type of guy to show this emotion because he's sort of, you know, he's a reserved guy, right, when it comes to that stuff. You know, he's just a ball player, right, like he's always said. But as it turns out, Kruk ends up getting three hits on the day, and he says after the game, people were jokingly pissed off because they went through all of spring training and couldn't hit like that, and all Kruk had was a handful of bats and an icy vet from Dickie Knowles, right, just throwing BP after cancer treatment every damn day, right, and I thought that was such a wonderful story because, you know, you... As as we get older, man, you know, there are certain players that stick in our head as just being like true greats, right? But a guy like John Cruck, he might mean something to us because we were, you know, old enough to remember him play. But maybe fans of today's game might not really understand how good John Cruck was because when they go on Instagram or Google him or whatever, it's like, oh, that's the big guy with the mullet, right? Yeah, fat guy. But... You know, you, you look at a situation like that with what John Cruck did, you know, going through cancer treatment, you know that that was a hardworking guy. And again, you know, it's it's sort of a story where you get the intersection of, you know, life in baseball and how the game is so much more than stats and contracts and even winning and losing because Cruck never won a World Series, right? But to and he's he's not a Hall of Famer. He he hit like a Hall of Famer, but it's just like you know, Cruck's sort of like Dick Allen in the sense of like you had this really good player, but maybe a lot of people don't know it. But as time goes on, you really realize it. But you know, going through cancer treatment, like all he really wanted to do was play baseball because even like baseball players, you know, it's like. For us as just normal folks, you know, we work our nine to five jobs and sometimes baseball and sports can be an escape. And it sort of was for him too. And that's what baseball meant to him. And then, you know, when someone like me reads that story, you know, it means something to me too, because it's representative of what what baseball means to me, you know, with hard work and dedication and, you know, overcoming and just, you know, continuing to grind. And I, I think that's a wonderful thing, you know, so when you look at that story about John Cruck, like it, it just makes me happy, you know, it's stuff like that that makes me realize, you know, why I love baseball as much as I do. And it's just, it's really nice to, you know, hear stories like that and then look back at his career and then, you know, have a newfound love and appreciation for John Cruck because of who he is as a person. So, you know, the next time you think of John Cruck, just remember he's more than the, uh, the, the, the husky guy with the mullet, you know, he was a damn good hitter. I think that's probably it. I think I'll wrap up the podcast now. Uh, the next episode will be with Graham McLaughlin. He's a big hat collector. So honestly, I've already got that recorded. So I'll upload that one pretty quick. It's like a two-hour Joe Rogan type episode where we just sort of chat. But also, before I forget, like one of the things I want to start doing is having more guests on the podcast. So that'll be my second guest in probably the last four weeks. 
And I realized with all the people, you know, that I get a chance to meet and talk to through the Instagram page. And I say meet. I don't really meet them. It's just, you know, talking to people through Instagram, right? And I, uh, you know, I would like to have some of the Instagram followers that follow my account on the podcast to talk baseball because there's so many people out there that have so many badass baseball stories. You know, funny ones, meaningful ones, is everything, right? So I think I'm going to start planning for that too. So if you see me in your direct mail inbox and we previously had a conversation, it's not spam. I'll probably want to have you on the podcast. Listen, great show on dirt, hoodhat.com. Go get your hood hat. I don't have a promo code for you. I don't have shit, but it's a really good hat. And they're badass, man. Go to my Instagram page, dude. The last pack of baseball cards I opened was 86 tops and I wore the Jack Murphy hat, dude. It's so sick. And greatest show on dirt on Instagram. Check it out. Check out some funny stuff that I post because I don't have a life outside of baseball. <laughs> Me and my daughter, man, we're tearing it up right now. So half the pictures you probably see on my Instagram, she's probably pointed to because she's the heart and soul of this whole thing, baby. Listen, thank you for listening. Take care. Until next time, we'll see you later. Bye, guys.